right. As we start, please keep in your mind the word hope, because that is where it all starts. From the ancients of old, they had hope that the Messiah would come. From Genesis 3, 14 and 15. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. For the next four Sundays, we'll be reading selections from the Jesus Storybook Bible. A little different. As we light our candles in preparation for Christmas. Our first reading takes us back to the time not long before God created the world. After Adam and Eve lived joyfully in the perfect garden home God made for them. After Satan disguised himself as a snake to trick Adam and Eve into disobeying God. And after the first couple realized that disobeying God was the worst nightmare imaginable. So um, here is how it goes. Before they left the garden, God made clothes for his children to cover them. He gently clothed them and sent them away in a long, long journey out of the garden and out of their home. Well, in another story, it would have been all over. It would have been the end, but not in this story. God loved his children too much to let the story end there. Even though he knew that he would suffer, God had a plan, a magnificent dream. One day he would get his children back. One day he would make the world their perfect home again. One day he would wipe away every tear from their eyes. You see, no matter what, in spite of everything, God would love his children with a never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. And though they would forget him and run from him deep in their hearts, God's children would miss him always and long for him, lost children yearning for their home. Before they left the garden, God whispered a promise to Adam and Eve. It will not always be so. I will come back to rescue you. And when I do, I'm going to do battle against the snake. I'll get rid of sin and the darkness and the sadness you let in here. I'm coming back for you. And he would. One day, God himself would come. Please pray with me. Um, Lord, we thank you for the promise that you would come to save us, Lord, that you would send the king to live as we, to know us, and to love us. And Lord, we want to remember the hope that you have for us, even this day. And so as we light this candle, Lord, help us remember that this is where it started, and those um, who did not know exactly that you would come. And Lord, just thank you that we know that you have come. And we look forward to that second coming. Amen. Um, so good morning, Washer Community Church. I think a lot of you know me. Uh, I'm Michael. Um, it's always a joy to, to come here and just open up God's word with you. Um, you know, we're, my, me and my family, were in Mass in Wisconsin, seeking to make disciples there through a, a missional house church, and uh, God's doing great things there. It's always a joy. It feels like this is our second family to kind of come and worship with. So it's just really sweet to be here this morning as we kind of jump into this Advent series. And um, as Aaron mentioned, Advent is really this time of the year that the church has historically said, we want to look back at Jesus' first coming. That's what Advent means, coming. 
and celebrate what Jesus has already done as we also look ahead to what Jesus will do when he comes back to defeat all evil once and for all to make everything right again. We heard that in the Jesus Storybook Bible, right? That he's going to bring his children home into a perfect world. And I don't know about you, but the more I look around what's going on in our world, I'm like, man, I want Jesus to come back. Um, You know, I just find myself praying for that more, eager to see him return, right? And often in the season of Advent, we, we focus on the beauty of the incarnation, right? That God himself took on human flesh, became one of us and walked among us. I mean, that is amazing. It just blows your mind. Or we focus on how faithful God is to keep his promises of old from thousands of years ago through the prophets to bring it to completion in Jesus. And this morning, I want to add maybe another layer to that, that to focus on it, maybe an aspect of Advent we don't often think about as much. And it's this. Have you ever thought about Advent as spiritual warfare? Have you ever thought that the story of Advent is the story of the great cosmic war between that promised son of Eve that we heard about, crushing that serpent's head? And that's what Revelation 12 is going to point us to this morning. We're going to look at Revelation 12 and see the Apostle John point us in this direction of seeing the great spiritual war reality that stands behind Advent. So before we dive into God's Word, I just want to pray for us and ask for God's help to be with us this morning. Father, we come to you because we recognize that we need you. Or maybe some here this morning have come and they don't even know why they've come, but I think it's because you put that hunger in their hearts for you. And so I pray you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to receive what you want to speak to us, what you want to show us. And we don't just want to see and hear and learn, but Father, we want to be transformed by your word to live for you in a way that brings glory and honor to you. So I pray, Father, in my own weakness and frailty, would you help me to speak your words and only your words? Would that be what remains? Pray this in your name. Amen. Well, before I dive into read Revelation chapter 12, I just want to give us a little bit of context. It's always a bad idea to just jump in the middle of a book without a little bit of context. Uh, the book of Revelation was written by the Apostle John, one of Jesus' 12 disciples. He's in exile for his faithful witness to Jesus. And this is written about the time period AD 90. And Jesus appears to him. And Jesus says, I have a message for for the church. Because the church at that time was experiencing a lot of persecution. There was a lot of pressure for them to fit in and go along with culture and worship all the other gods. There was economic pressure. There was social pressure. And sometimes there was even prison and death. And some of the churches were holding fast. And so Jesus wants to encourage them. You're doing good. Hold on. I've got you. And some of the churches were giving in. It was just easier to go with the flow, and it's a warning to them. If you pick the world, then you're turning away from Jesus. And some have just gone totally apathetic. And Jesus warned them, wake up, wake up. And what what Jesus gives John to give to the churches then and for us now is this series of visions 
to show us what's really going on because we tend to look around the world with our human eyes, right? That's what we have. And we see wars, and we see famines, and we see conflict, and we see addiction, and we see human problems. But Revelation is meant to pull back the curtain and say, actually, there's this spiritual reality that's going on at the exact same time. There's a spiritual reality behind and through it all. And the good news is when the curtain gets pulled back, it looks a lot less grim than you think because the king of kings, his victory is 100% certain. And, and at the heart of this book is this vision in Revelation 12. It's smack dab in the middle. And we get this vision where it's, so to speak, God is showing what really happened in the birth of Jesus, the spiritual reality. And so let's read that. And, and as we read, I want you to listen it can be a little bit tough because Revelation is very full of symbolic language. And I want to be clear here, symbolic doesn't mean untrue. Okay, It just means it's not literal. It's a symbol to communicate truth, just like the Lord is my shepherd is a symbol. right? Jesus isn't really a literal shepherd or not literally sheep, but it communicates truth in a powerful and beautiful way. So that's what's going on in Revelation 12. So listen as I read this. A great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and a crown of twelve stars on her head. She was pregnant and cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. Then another sign appeared in heaven. An enormous red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on its heads. Its tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth. The dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth, so it might devour her child the moment he was born. She gave birth to a son, a male child who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter. And her child was snatched up to God and to his throne. The woman fled into the wilderness to a place prepared for her by God, where she might be taken care of for 1,260 days. Then war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was not strong enough, and they lost their place in heaven. The great dragon was hurled down, that ancient serpent called the devil, or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth and his angels with him. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Messiah. For the accuser of our brothers and sisters who accuses them before our God day and night has been hurled down. They triumphed over him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. Therefore rejoice, you heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has gone down to you. He is filled with fury, because he knows that his time is short. When the dragon saw that he had been hurled to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. The woman was given two wings of a great eagle so that she might fly to the place prepared for her in the wilderness, where she would be taken care of for a time times and half a time out of the serpent's reach. Then from his mouth the serpent spewed water like a river to overtake the woman and sweep her away with the torrents. But the earth helped the woman by opening its mouth and swallowing the river that the dragon had spewed out of his mouth. Then the dragon was enraged at the woman and went off to wage war against the rest of her offspring, those who keep God's commands and hold fast their testimony about Jesus. So this morning as we work through this passage, what I want us to see is that 
there are two great spiritual realities before us. One, that Jesus has already defeated Satan, the devil. And two, that Satan is still raging and fighting even though he knows he's lost. And then we're going to see how to respond to those two great realities this morning. So the first reality, Satan has been utterly already defeated by Jesus. We start with this sign appearing in the heaven in verse 1. And if you think about a sign or a symbol in the heaven, maybe your mind might even gone to constellation. And actually, I think it's correct. I think part of what John sees is literally a sign in the heavens. This constellation, the woman, likely Virgo, who has 12 stars above her head, and he sees this constellation at the time when the sun is passing through the middle of the constellation, clothing her with the moon at her feet. And what's really amazing is actually when you put those astronomical facts together, there's a 90-minute window of time around when Jesus was likely born that this points to. And that was the year 3 BC on the first day of the month of Tishri, which is a very significant day in the Jewish calendar. It's the day, the first day of the new year, which symbolizes new creation. But it's also the day in Judah when the kings were enthroned. So this is the symbol saying, the king is showing up. The king is arriving. But at the same time, these symbols in Revelation often have multiple meanings. So not only is this the sign of when Jesus was born, but everything in this sign means something. You have a woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet and 12 stars, and she's pregnant and about to give birth. Who is this woman? What does she point to? And sometimes you might think, well, it's got to be Mary, right? But if you go down to verse 5 and 6, you'll see that after her child is snatched up to God in his throne, she flees into the wilderness where there's a place prepared for her. That never happens to Mary. It's actually more likely that this woman here represents God's people, Israel, often described as the bride of the Lord. She's this woman who has been prepared to give birth to a son, a child. We, we heard that in the Adoree, which I didn't plan. That was just awesome. But there would be this child that would come, a descendant of Eve. And not just a descendant of Eve, but more specifically, a descendant of Abraham, who would bless all the nations. And not just specifically a descendant of Abraham, but specifically, if we keep reading the Old Testament, a descendant of David, who would be king forever. And for long years, and this is why there's all these genealogies across the Old Testament. You're like, they're boring. It's a, it's a testimony of God's faithfulness to keep the family line going until the one kid that matters shows up. And once Jesus shows up, there's no more genealogies. It doesn't matter anymore. The promise has come. And we see that in verse 5 where she gives birth to a son, a male child, who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter. And this is a quote from Psalm 2. If you go back to Psalm 2, you would see that it's a psalm about God putting His Messiah, His Son, as King over all the nations despite their opposition. And He says to His Son, the King, Ask of Me and I will give the nations as your inheritance. And you will rule them with a rod of iron. And so we see in this sign that finally, we see from this spiritual perspective that God has prepared His people Israel to bring the Messiah in to reclaim the nations. That the nations who have all been worshiping their own gods, now he's like, no, you're mine now. 
I claim you as my own. I've sent my son to be king over you. But if he's coming to reclaim the nations, that implies that somebody else was trying to rule them. And that's the other sign we see, right? In verse 3. Because we have this terrifying sign that while this woman's about to give birth, we have this enormous red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on his heads. And he sweeps a third of the stars out of the sky. And he's standing in front of the woman who's about to give birth so he might devour her child the moment he was born. Who is this dragon? Well, we read in verse 9, he is that ancient serpent called the devil or Satan. You know that Satan? That serpent figure who was told by God, we heard in the story, oh, one day Eve's going to have a son and he's going to crush you. So it makes sense why he's there. Like, all right, Eve's son is here. I'm going to devour him from the moment he comes out. End his life now before he has any chance to do anything to me, right? There's this spiritual battle going on here at the birth of Jesus between God's plan and Satan's. And it plays out on the human level. So if we were to go to Matthew 2, you could read about what's happening on the human side of the curtain, where a king named Herod has these magi from the east show up and they say, Where's the king to be born? And Herod's like, what king are you talking about? I'm king. I don't like this talk about some other king. And so he pretends that he wants to worship this new king too. So he tells the wise men, oh, when you find them, come back and tell me so I can come and worship him too. Meanwhile, he's readying you know, his SWAT troops to take him out. He's there, the devil behind Satan, eager to devour this child. And yet God sends an angel to warn the wise men, don't trust Herod, go home another way. And then when Herod starts to realize that the clock ticks by, that they're not coming back, he's like, what's fine? I don't know how old he is, but he's got to be less than two years old. So he sends his soldiers in to kill every two-year-old child and under male child in the city of Bethlehem. And yet God protects his son. And the angel comes to Joseph and says, get out of Dodge. And he does. But do you see how the Christmas story has this great spiritual battle? Herod's not just an egotistical maniac king who's holding on to his power. He is an agent of the dragon who wants to destroy the sun, but he's unable to. And then later, as we keep reading the story, the dragon probably thinks he wins. Ah, I couldn't get Herod to do it, but I got Pontius Pilate and the Jewish leaders on my side, and we finally killed him only to realize that Jesus' death was the checkmate move. And what do we read here? We skip all of that. Revelation is just highlighting the victory. He snatched up to God and to his throne. Satan cannot stop Jesus from rising from the dead, ascending on high, and claiming the throne above all thrones. And one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. Satan couldn't stop it. And we see this amazing victory played out in verses 7 through 10 as well. We have war broke out in heaven and Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And some people think this refers to a cosmic battle before the world began. That's possible. There's a references of, Jesus, of Satan's fall from heaven in other spots in the Old Testament. But I think in the context here, it actually makes more sense to see this is happening at Jesus' birth. That there's this battle happening and Satan and his forces lose. They lose dramatically. They're cast down to the earth. 
And you see that in Jesus' own ministry when he sends the disciples out to preach and cast out demons. They come back and they're like, Jesus, you wouldn't believe it. We did it. We preached the gospel. People believed. We cast out demons. And Jesus goes, yeah, I saw Satan fall like lightning out of heaven. Or when Jesus casts out demons, he says, if I'm casting out demons, it's because I've already bound the strong man, Satan. That's why I can plunder from his kingdom. He's had all these people captive. No, no, no. I've already bound him. In Jesus' birth, life, death, and resurrection, Satan has been defeated. And Paul puts it so clearly in Colossians 2 when he says, when the record of our debts was canceled and nailed to the cross, Jesus put the spiritual powers to open shame, triumphing over them. You're done. The war is over. You're utterly defeated. In verse 10, right? Now have come the salvation, the power, and the kingdom of our God and the authority of His Messiah. Isn't that what Jesus said when He showed up, showed up on the scene? Repent and believe, for the kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom has come because the king has come. The rightful king. And Satan is getting the boot. I just want you to pause there for a minute and think about this. When was the last time as you celebrate Christmas, you brought to it the joy and celebration that our country felt when D-Day happened? We took the beaches. And at that point on, it's just a matter of time before the war ends. The main battle's already been won. When was the last time you felt the joy of that? Or I just encourage you this morning to cultivate that joy. Wow. Satan has been defeated. Jesus is reigning and ruling right now as king. That's what I remember at Christmas. Not just a babe, but a cosmic invasion that was utterly successful. But with this first big reel, we have a second reel that Satan is still raging, right? Look at verse 12 with me. Rejoice, you heavens and you who dwell in them, but woe to the earth and the sea because the devil has gone down to you. He is filled with fury because he knows that his time is short. He knows his time is short. Satan isn't fighting anymore because he thinks he can win. After the cross and the resurrection, it's, he knows it's game over. And I imagine he probably feels a little bit how Hitler felt in the dying days of World War II, where he knows he's lost. The Allied forces from east and west are closing in on him. It's game over. But instead of surrendering, what does he do? He basically does the largest number of slaughter of Jewish people and the wiping out of his political enemies. Because if he's going down, he's going to take everybody down with them that he can. And that's what Satan is doing. Look at verse 13. When the dragon sees he's been hurled to the earth, he doesn't surrender. He pursues the woman, God's, symbolizing God's people, right? Well, then I'm going to take out God's people if I can't beat God. But God watches over his people. He gives the woman two wings of a great eagle to fly away. Now, I don't think this is literal, but it recalls this image from the Exodus, that every time they reference back to the Exodus, God's people said, we were rescued from Egypt on eagle's wings. That's why he's given eagle wings, because it reminds, oh yeah, just like before when we were rescued from e evil Pharaoh, so we're rescued from this big evil bad guy, the devil, just like before. And even though he might come and spew water like a river to overtake the woman, whatever that means, 
God even uses the earth to swallow the water. Whatever Satan throws at God's people cannot ultimately harm them. That's the picture we're meant to be to take away from. This confidence that even though Satan rages, he cannot do ultimate harm. But he rages, verse 17, he goes off to wage war against the rest of her offspring, those who keep God's commands and hold fast their testimony about Jesus. See, Satan hates anything connected with God. So he hates every human being because we are made as images of God. But then he really hates even more than that I think ethnic Israel, because God chose them for a purpose to bring about the Messiah. So he really hates them. But then he even really, really hates those who trust to follow Jesus. God's people, both Jew and non-Jew who trust in Jesus, are his people, and Satan is out to get them. He's prowling around like a roaring lion, seeking to devour. He knows he can't win, but he is not going to go down without a fight. Do we recognize that even as we wait for that second return of Jesus, we're in the middle still of a spiritual war? It's not over. It's been won, but it's not over. Do we remember at Christmas that not only Jesus has won, but God gives us strength to stand firm? And that's really our response is we need to trust in Jesus. So this is our last point, this idea not just of the great spiritual reality of Jesus' victory, not just of the reality that Satan is still at work, but now the response is found in verse 11 that I skipped over on purpose. They triumphed over him, that is the believers, by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. They triumphed over him, Satan, by the blood of the Lamb. See, Jesus' death is what brings the victory. Because here's how Satan's strategy works. He convinces you or I to sin. Right? That's step one of his strategy. And after that, he tries to go before God and go, hey, look, God, they sinned. And what does your law say? Sin leads to death, so you've got to kill them, God. You've got to judge them. He's the accuser. Do you see that back in verse 10? He's the accuser of our brothers and sisters who accuses them before God day and night. He can't touch us. But he knows if he can get us to sin, which we've all sinned, then he can try to play us against God. It's like the, the great book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Uh, I, if you haven't read it, you should. It's a great book. It's about these four kids in England during World War II, two, two boys, two girls. They go through this magic wardrobe and end up in the land of Narnia, where it is always winter and never Christmas because of the rule of the evil witch. But there's a promise that one day the great lion Aslan, the prince of the emperor beyond the sea, will return. And he will seat two boys and two, two girls on the thrones of Ker Paravel. And so the witch meets Edmund alone at one point, one of the brothers in the woods. And she quickly realizes, oh shoot, this is the end for me. And so she tricks him to work for her. And she captures him. But Aslan and his forces rescue him. It's great. He's been rescued, right? But then the witch comes to Aslan and says, you know the law. Every traitor must die. And you would not break your own emperor's laws, would you? And so Aslan goes off and talks with her. He comes back and tells everyone, good news, Edmund's free. But at the cost of the lion's life. See, Aslan dies in Edmund's place, to satisfy the law and set him free. 
And that's the same with us. The blood of the Lamb is how we triumph Satan because when Satan comes and says, hey, you've sinned. I just got you to sin again. You know it. You're able to say, yeah, but guess what, Satan? Jesus died for that sin. And he's standing right now before God. And God looks at me and he sees Jesus. So you got nothing on me. And that's for all the sins we've done and all the sins we will do, friends. The blood of the Lamb is enough to cover. And those who by the word of their testimony hold to that Lamb are safe. And when we hear the word testimony, we often think of like your personal story, right? But that's not what the word means in Revelation. Over and over again in Revelation, testimony always means the testimony about what Jesus has done for us. So the word of their testimony isn't the word of how Jesus saved me. It's the word of what Jesus did. So it's like saying, I'm holding fast to the gospel. I'm holding fast to the good news, the witness, the testimony that Jesus really did die and rise again for me. That's what I'm holding fast to. I'm holding fast that the message is Jesus. And in that, Satan has nothing left to throw at me. All he can do is affect my body. He can't ultimately defeat me. And so as long as I don't fear what he could do to my body, there's no way he can defeat me, which is that third aspect, right? They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. Go ahead, Satan. You can kill me if you want to. I won't stop following Jesus. And we get here what saving faith looks like. There's a guy named Michael Heiser I like listening to, and he talks about faith as believing loyalty. You trust in Jesus for what he did for you, and you keep on trusting him by being loyal to him. You keep following him. Like Daniel and his friends who would say, God can rescue us, but even if he doesn't, throw me into the lion's pit, throw me into the fiery furnace, I won't stop following God. Because of who he is and what he's done for me. This is how we overcome. And notice we don't triumph over him by fighting. We triumph over him by trusting and suffering. So this morning, as I've been praying for this time, I've really been praying that all of us would lean into trusting Jesus. And for some of you this morning, that might mean you're recognizing you're not sure which team you're on. In Revelation, it makes it really clear, especially if you read the whole book, there are only two teams. There is no neutral. Right? If you think you can just be neutral on this whole God thing, you're wrong. You're either a slave to Satan, unaware of it, or you've been rescued because you've trusted in King Jesus. So this morning, I want to invite you to trust in Jesus to say, you know what, I recognize I've done wrong things. I recognize that my life is a mess. I recognize that I'm a slave to a greater power. And Jesus, I'm going to trust in you to rescue me. And you can pray that. That's simply, Jesus, just rescue me. I need you. If you do that this morning, I'd love to speak with you. I'm sure others would to encourage you in that. And maybe others of you, you're like, I know that I'm on the side of Jesus, but maybe there's fear in your heart. Maybe sometimes when you look around the world and you hear about the suffering, your instinct is to go towards fear. Like it feels like the end's getting closer. I'm getting more and more scared. And Revelation. And God's word wants to say, why are you getting scared? Don't you remember how good the end is? 
if we're getting closer to the end, start getting closer to the ultimate victory. You don't need to be afraid. You've already triumphed over him as you trust in Jesus and as you're willing to suffer. You can't do anything to you. Not anything that really matters. So keep on trusting him. And I pray that you would look at Christmas as a season and remember this victory. Remember to stand in that victory. and Not be afraid as things maybe feel like they're getting worse. And others of you, I want to encourage you that Maybe the word for you this morning is to trust in God instead of fighting. Because I'm concerned that one of the things the enemy wants to do is he wants us to focus on all the human problems and miss this spiritual battle. He wants us to think that the real battles are fought in our human world, in human structures, and at the ballot box, and they're not. The real battle is fought by making disciples who trust in Jesus and follow him. That's where the real battle's fought. And it's not fought with strength. It's not fought with a selfish seeking our own rights. It's fought by imitating our King Jesus. Who? How did he win? He wins by suffering and dying. And loving his enemies. And then the resurrection came. And us too, friends. Jesus can do so much to us as we fight, ironically, by trusting him. By blessing those who persecute us by loving our enemies, by being willing to suffer and so show that Jesus is worth suffering. What communicates more to the watching world that Jesus is a king worth following? The people who are willing to follow him even when it costs them or the people that want to fight for their own rights? Let's stand in the victory Jesus has won. Let's trust him for what he's done. Let's remember the victory he's already accomplished. Let's remember to stand in that through trusting in him and holding fast to him, even in the midst of suffering. Because in the end, we'll get to experience the great and final day when the devil is thrown into the lake of fire and even death dies. And every tear is wiped away. No more sickness. No more sadness. No more conflict. All will be made right as it was in the beginning for all who trust and hold fast to King. Let me pray. Father, I want to just thank you that you didn't give up on this world. That when your first children and all of us since then have chosen time and time again to live for ourselves, to work for Team Satan, you committed yourself to sending your own son to rescue us. God, thank you. I pray, Father, every person here would trust in Jesus today, whether for the first time or to be encouraged and renewed in their deep trust in Jesus. And I pray that as we remember that you've already won it all, that you would help us to stand firm, not through our own efforts, not through our own strength, God, but through a deep, deep trust in Jesus, holding fast to the message of the gospel, enduring. Because we know that for all those who endure with you, we will also reign with you. And all those who die with you will be raised up to new life with you. Pray this in your name. Amen. Amen. He is reigning right now, friends. And he will come again to rule perfectly. 
I just want to encourage you that one of the, one of the reasons why we gather together is to spur one another on towards love and good deeds, to encourage each other to hold fast. And we do that as we sing together, as we hear the word, but also in these Sunday school groups afterwards. That's where you get to encourage one another and talk to each other and process what God's been putting on your heart. So I just encourage you this morning to go to one of those, connect with other believers, continue to encourage each other in that. And just as a final word from God for us this morning, we'll wrap up this time. It's from 1 Peter chapter 5. Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith because you know that the family of believers throughout the whole world is undergoing the same kind of sufferings. And the God of all grace... The God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. To him be the power forever and ever. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.